Hello and welcome to Biblical Brainstorm. My name is Chandler. Uh, as you can see today, I don't have my co-host Seth. Um, he is neck deep in finals, but he should be joining us the following week. Uh, but today we are going to cover um, the next part of our series, which is Worship in the Middle Ages. Um, so yeah, we've been building on our series on worship so far. We had uh, worship in the Old Testament, worship in the New Testament, uh, worship in the early church, and now we are going through to the Middle Ages, what that looks like in that kind of era. And uh, yeah, then we'll probably touch on something next week with the Renaissance and uh, and modern-ish. And then we'll wrap this series up pretty soon and then start a new series somewhere down the line. Um, but yeah, I hope everybody had a great Easter. Uh, I know we took a little bit of a break to enjoy Palm Sunday and Easter and all of that little you know holiday festivity stuff. So um, and I know it's finals for a lot of you guys, too. I had finals. I just finished mine, thankfully. Um, yeah, I'm actually excited for summer break. I got two more classes left, and then I will have my master's degree. So, yeah, I'm um, definitely excited. Um, since I don't have a co-host today, and, uh, you know, it would uh, help me if you guys interact a little more today. Maybe give some comments below. Uh, you don't have to, but that way I'm not just uh, talking to myself here. But, uh, you know, there. I, can be a little bit of interaction, um, but it is live. So feel free to like, comment. Um, if you're on YouTube, subscribe on Facebook, like, um, but yeah, I'll jump right in though. And uh, today, like I said, I'm talking about worship in the middle ages. And so the middle ages, that's kind of like, uh, you know, a lot of people don't know what exactly that term means. They know kind of a general time frame. They think, okay, knights and, uh, you know, horses and armor and, castles and that's what they kind of think of during this time period um but there's actually a lot that happens in the what we call the middle ages and a lot of people's perception of that is usually just for from like england and france and stuff like that but there's a lot going on in the other parts of the world and in christianity at the time um, but generally a lot of historians will place uh the middle ages or the medieval period between the uh, beginning of Constantinople and the fall of Constantinople. So from uh, basically Constantine to Constantine. So if you watched last week's episode, we kind of left off to where Constantine came to power. Um, he is um, converted to Christianity. He was a Roman emperor um, in the fourth century AD. And so you kind of have this transition in Christianity where it was once illegal um, where it was being persecuted for over 300 years. And then now that Constantine came into power um, in the Roman Empire, Christianity starts to come to a more favorable light. And uh, now people are able to express their religion and Christianity more freely and organize themselves more in church and without the fear of being dragged into Colosseums and killed for their faith. And um, so hopefully if you didn't get a chance to watch last week's episode, uh, feel free to, to go back and check that out, see what worship looked like and Christianity even looked like in that period of time. But now we're transitioning to the Middle Ages where Constantine comes to power. Christianity is now legal. He made the Edict of Milan, which I can see is probably, let me see the date here, um, about 320, let's see, I think it was around 325-ish, but uh, Constantine comes to power at 312. So from 312, uh, he establishes uh, his, a new capital. He moves the capital from Rome to a, a new city under his name, Constantinople, which, you know, kind of, uh, I guess if I was emperor, I would make it 
city with my name on it, right? Chandler, Chandler Noble, something like that. Um, so he does that. And the city of Constantinople uh, flourishes up until um, 1453. And, uh, Funny enough, the leader at the time, the Roman emperor at the time, was also named Constantine. So uh, I think it was Constantine the 11th. So you have a bunch of rulers, and by you know this thousand-year gap, pretty much, um, Constantinople, the capital of the Roman Empire, is kind of ruling and reigning at the time. So this is uh, so from the rise of Constantinople to the fall of Constantinople, that is like the Middle Ages per se, right? Um, you know. Few historians will disagree. They'll say, you know, maybe a little later, maybe a little earlier, but that's a good general like time frame. So we'll be covering in this episode a little bit of what worship looked like and Christianity looked like um, between that those two events. Okay. So um, first off, with you know, obviously, like I said, Constantinople is uh, established as a city. You can already see in just a little backstory that the Roman Empire from Rome is now kind of shifting, the power is kind of shifting east, right? Um, partly it's because barbarians, which is, you know, the Germanic peoples and people northern in, in Europe are starting to invade and start, and the Roman Empire is starting to slowly collapse. And so um, Rome itself falls in 395, and then also they had another sacking and fall in 476. So you have this kind of barbarians going into Italy, into uh, other parts of Europe and France and all this, and they're kind of taking over the Roman Empire. And so it's, you know, squeezing the Roman Empire into the east, into this like little pocket of um, the Greek speaking world or like Constantinople where that is. And uh, if you don't know where Constantinople is, it's modern day Istanbul. It's um, in Turkey. So that's kind of, you know, gives you an idea geographically of where it is. Um, so what did Christianity look like during this time? Obviously, a big overview. There's a lot of transition. So there's a lot to cover. So I'm just going to give like a brief overview today. Obviously, if I were to cover all of Christianity and wor what worship looked like uh, between those two events, this would be a really, really long episode. But it'll probably not be super long today, especially since I'm by myself. Um, but yeah, this you have this transition where Christianity is now legal. Um, Christians are expressing their faith a little more openly and a little more organized now. Now they're starting to get some state backing now, even funding, building churches, building bigger cathedrals slowly. Um, you have things funneling to the east with Constantinople. Then you have the rise of Islam. That's going to present a huge challenge to the church, right, in, let's see, 622 AD, right? So they come to power um in the arabian peninsula then they're starting to take over from the east so <laughs> you got basically the church which they had christianized the roman empire for 300 years of persecution now they got a break right christians have um are able to freely express their faith and now all of a sudden they have pagan barbarians from the north and you know from europe northern europe and then now they have the rise of islam in kind of the southeast which is in, you know, south as they conquered North Africa. And so now the Christ Christianity is kind of getting squeezed militarily now from two groups that are, you know, opposed to Christianity at the time. So the Middle Ages is going to be a lot of time of turmoil, right? It's called the Dark Ages in, in some cases, which it's not really a fair thing to say it's the Dark Ages, but it's certainly a time where there's a lot of transition, a lot of political chaos, 
um, and the church itself is also going to face a lot of challenges uh, and have to adapt to kind of new political systems with the collapse of the Roman Empire and now having to kind of um, express its faith in, in new ways. And so um, from there, I wanted to open up with uh, Eusebius. So um, I've been using this book a lot for our series, which is the Oxford History of Christian Worship. Um, if you are interested in Christian worship or this topic in general, I definitely recommend this book. Uh, it's from a very bird's eye academic view of everything, but it does give a lot of detail as well. And so um, Eusebius, he was an early church uh, historian. He's actually the known as the first Christian historian, which is actually really cool. Uh, and I have his writings actually right here. Um, so he's a cool dude. Definitely check him out. But uh, in this, I have a little excerpt from him, kind of the transition of what it looked like where Christianity goes from uh, illegal to legal, because he's right at that kind of uh, that point where Constantine's coming to power. Or he's reflecting back on Constantine coming to power and, um, you know, making Christianity legal. And uh, he says here, um, but how can anyone describe those vast assemblies and the multitudes that crowded together in every city and the famous gatherings in the houses of prayer on whose account not being satisfied with the ancient buildings they erected from the foundation large churches in all cities. And so you got to remember, Christianity was being persecuted, so they could only really meet in um, catacombs and houses and secluded places and maybe at night places. So uh, now this, this freedom that Christians have going into the 4th century AD they can build churches for the first time, and they don't want to just use these ancient buildings or these old pagan temples. They decide, well, let's establish God's house, right? Let's make new buildings, uh, big churches where we can assemble together freely um, under, you know, the empire. Now a Christian-ish, you know, uh, I say Christian-ish because Constantine didn't necessarily make it a Christian empire. He just made it a favorable religion. So there was still paganism going on. Um widespread in the Roman Empire at the time, but you see this transition from a pagan empire to a Christian empire. You know, in the 4th, 5th, 6th centuries AD, it's going to transition into a Christian empire. Um, and so he also says, after this, the site was seen, which had been desired and prayed for by us all. Uh, again, you got to think Christians have been praying for generations and generations at this point. Uh, when is the persecution going to stop? And so God finally just... Um, presses on the heart of the emperor himself to be uh, converted uh, as a Christian. Um, and, you know, I, I don't have time to get into all the, the conversion of Constantine stuff, but basically, you know, when the top dog of the Roman Empire is now favorable towards Christianity, you finally get a break after a couple generations. And, uh, and so it says, pray for us by all uh, feasts of dedication in the cities and consecrations of the newly built houses of prayer took place. Bishops assembled, foreigners came from abroad, mutual love was exhibited between people and people. The members of Christ's body were united in complete harmony. Um, so, I mean, that's great because now you have people all across from Africa, from Asia, from Europe, uh, you know, and, the, and of course that area of the Middle East where now you have Christianity is now legal and they're able to travel and freely express their faith and come together and assemble together these uh these churches so i think that's just a must have been such a beautiful sight to see um when when christians are able to come out of the shadows a little bit and express their faith and so 
Um, that that's one big transition. Obviously, worship now is going to change because you have these small gatherings in house churches, and now you're going to have more of a corporate setting of church. You're going to have people gathering in larger buildings, more people. Uh, now that it's become a favorable religion, you're going to there's a lot of common people that are now going to be attracted into the faith since you're not getting killed for it. <laughs> so there's going to be a lot of regular people that are now going to start gathering and becoming Christian and going to church um, that may be more nominal in their faith. So the gatherings are going to get bigger. The buildings are going to get bigger. Uh, it's going to get more organized, the services. And now you're going to have um, the change in worship as well, where it's more corporate gatherings uh, and not just small groups. Um, so there's, there's that. Um, and as far as custom would it look like, we talked a little bit about some of the rites that they did with communion and baptism and everything. But, um, you know, what did it look like when Christianity was legal and afterwards? And uh, there's this one excerpt from Ambrose, St. Ambrose, who was a church um, father at the time. And uh, I wanted to turn to his, uh, what, he, what he said about baptism. So how a service would work back then, you have, you know, you have your, your schedule, you have your, your rites. And, he's, and at some point when you had baptism, right, new converts would come in. They would be baptized, and then they could be a part of the church community. They could be, um, you know, a part of the church as a Christian, which is different than today. Now people go to church freely. They come and go. Um, and only people who really, you know, want to take next steps will get baptized. Well, at this point, you wouldn't really even be into the church until you were a Christian. So at this point, it's like only Christians are going to church. And if you wanted to be in church, you would get baptized and become a Christian. So evangelism was on the outside of the church, not on the inside per se, right? So nowadays our churches are kind of our evangelism, um, which, you know, we're gathering people to church and then praying they get saved. Well, at, th at this point, you know, people are out preaching the gospel. It's becoming an influence in the community and people get converted to the faith, get baptized, and then be a part of the, of the church and the community. So it's a little bit different. Um, but what's interesting is when they did baptism, I have this this excerpt here from uh, Ambrose, and he says that uh, we must now examine what it is we mean by baptism. You came to the front, you went down into it, the water, meaning, uh, you turned towards the high priest or the bishop, you saw there at the front the Levites and the presbyter, which were just, you know, the workers of the church. Uh, you were asked, do you believe in God the Father Almighty? You replied, I believe, and you were immersed, that is, buried. Uh, you were asked for a second time, do you believe in our Lord Jesus Christ and in his cross? You replied, I believe, and you were immersed, which means that you were buried with Christ. For one is buried with Christ, rises again with Christ. You were asked a third time, do you believe also in the Holy Spirit? You replied, I believe, and you were immersed a third time, so that the threefold confession might absolve the manifold lapses of the past. So it's quite interesting the way they did baptism because, you know, you see, read in the New Testament, it says, you know, they baptized in the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Well, they took that pretty literally going into uh, the Middle Ages here, or the early, you know, early Middle Ages, now that Christianity is legal. They have these services, they have baptism, and they would quite literally immerse them three times. <laughs> so it's like, and the Father, and then you said you believe in the Son, boom, and then in the Spirit, boom. So very Trinitarian way of baptizing. I know today uh, a lot of churches, you know, they... They say, uh, do you believe in Jesus Christ or the baptism? You know, they say it all together, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And there's like one immersion. Um, so there's nothing wrong with that. It's just interesting that uh, how 
going into the Middle Ages and that Christianity is getting legal, they interpreted, uh, you know, how do they baptize? How do they run a service? Well, they would um, bring him up to the front, like he says. They would ask him, do you believe in God, God the Father? Baptize him, believe in God, uh, you know, Christ the Son. Baptize him and the Holy Spirit and then baptize him. So very interesting uh, how they how they did things there. Um, there. Um, so that was kind of the general church, right? And the church, for the most part, is pretty united uh, at this point. You know, you have kind of one, uh, you, you know, Catholic church. Uh, Catholic in this case, just meaning the widespread or universal world church, right? So this is uh, this is not like uh, you're not you're not going to have a lot of denominations at this point, right? The church is pretty heavily united under the empire, and uh, you have, of course, you have different groups and areas and geographic reasons and a little bit of different sects, but um, you you have kind of one church that, for the most part, they're agreeing on doctrinal things, they're meeting in councils, they're trying to be on the same page uh, as a church, world church community. Um, and, but um, unfortunately, one of the byproducts uh, that happens in the Middle Ages as the church gets larger and as the church gets more, um, you know, rich and powerful in some sense, there's going to be some backlash against that, that the church is maybe losing its way. Now they're having a lot of converts that aren't really Christian, right? They're just showing up now that Christianity is favorable. And uh, you're going to have, you know, what seems to be a more of a corrupted church as it gets more widespread and open to the public and bigger and uh, building bigger buildings and all that stuff. And so the response to this is the monastic movement. Right. And so the monastic movement tried to uh, do the other extreme, which was to quite literally separate themselves from the world altogether and start communities that are in remote places to devote themselves to prayer and to the teachings of, of God's word and to live a uh, separate and unholy life, right? And uh, so one of the reasons for monasticism was, was that, but another reason for monasticism was the um, that there was no more persecution. <laughs> so if, if there's no more persecution, then you know, how do you really prove that you're a real Christian, right? So there was this sense that the old martyrs, when they were being dragged into Colosseums and killed for their faith, you kind of really had to be a Christian to uh, not renounce your faith at threat of death, right? And so that that's like, um, that, that's a real eye-opener for, for, for people, right? And so if now that we're going into a the Middle Ages where Christianity is legal, uh, how do you really show that you're a Christian, right? How What's the, the devoted way of like, okay, you're not just a nominal church attender, but like you're a real Christian. And uh, and so the monastic movement kind of became that way of people who wanted to go deeper in their faith and wanted to uh, express their faith that they are, um, you know, true Christians for, per se. Um, because, you know, everybody honored the martyrs. It's like, well, if you got killed for your faith and you're really up there. Um, but now it's like what, you know, Christians who really wanted to separate themselves, they you have this rise of monasticism where they're going out of their way to live a more holy life than the world. Right. Uh, now that the world is kind of converting to Christianity. And so it's interesting that we still have the same tension today that they did back in the Middle Ages, where we're not in a persecuted, um, Christian, you know, country. We're in um, one that 
allows expression of faith in, in Christianity in a lot of countries around the world. Some don't, but a lot of them do allow Christianity to be expressed. And so um, there's a dilemma, right? There's a dilemma between um, the world, like how much of the world do you incorporate yourself into the world, but then how much do you, do you separate yourself from the world? So in your, in your faith, in your worship, in your expression, do you uh, allow believer, non-believers into the church? Do you not? Do they have to be Christian first? Do they, um, <laughs> you know, like how much do you let of the customs of the world? Like what kind of music, the genre style, what kind of um, accommodation do you have for the world? And then at what level do you separate yourselves from the world completely and kind of be um, your own thing, right? And so they face the same dilemma. And so some really try to build the church within the empire. And then some wanted to separate themselves altogether from anything that seemed like Roman or, or the world or, or anything like that, or society. And they became monks. And uh, so it's very interesting, kind of the, the dynamic there where, um, you know, in the world, not of it, or you separate yourself from the world. So denying the world, it's definitely that, that dilemma, right, that early Christians um, or church, you know, Christians now in the Middle Ages had to deal with. Um, but the monastic movement started with uh, people called the stylites. Or, so it wasn't like people immediately just started communities out of nowhere, separating themselves from the world. It actually came from this interesting group called the stylites um, or, and the hermits. So, so individuals, it wasn't communities. It was individuals who quite literally separated themselves from society as like a hermit. Um, and not unlike John the Baptist did, right? And some of the ASEANs or Jewish peoples of, of the, the, you know, before Jesus, they, they did the same thing, right? They're separating themselves from society. But in this case, it was an individual thing. Um, and one guy in particular I wanted to highlight was, name was Simon. So Simon the Stylite. Uh, and what he would do is that he, um, he was the one where, because there's humor, there's um, stylites and then hermits. So hermits would go out into the desert and live like away from society and so that they can pray and live a holy life, right? And people would sometimes go out to the desert to get prayed for by them or whatever. Then there were the stylites, which started with Simon, and they were kind of, kind of in society, but they weren't. They were like... Um, like Simon, for example, he would live on a giant column. So uh, I'll show you a picture here. So he's a guy who's quite literally torturing himself by living on top of this column and never coming down. So so he, he's spent years up here, right? He just, um, you know, getting burned by the sun. And people would, um, you can see that little basket in the rope thing, they, they would give him food so he didn't uh, die up there. But, you know, he's quite literally up there just living his life, fasting and and, and whatnot. whatnot. Um, I'm sure it's pretty hard to use the bathroom up there. I don't, I don't know if he had a separate basket or something for waste, but um, definitely quite interesting. But you see how he's just, you know, as a sight before all, looking at him just kind of separating himself from society, even though people can kind of see him out here in close to society in the desert-ish area. And, uh, you know, just trying to live a separate holy life uh, where he's just talking to God, 
and uh, you know he's just devoting himself away from people. <laughs> so it's uh, what's, what's funny is we we look at this and we think it might it's kind of ridiculous, but it was actually very impactful, especially for the people of the time. Because again, now that persecution's gone, how do you you know who's these great heroes of the faith that are going out of their way to live holy and and champion um, you know a life of the God? Well, now you have the stylites. People who have the opportunity to worship, but they're separating themselves from society to just devote their lives to God. And this is before the whole monastic thing really took off in communities and everything. So you just have individuals like hermits, and then in this case, Simon the Stylite. And uh, I wanted to read a little excerpt from the impact he actually made, um, because he would sometimes preach from on top of this column, and, and people would come to him for um, advice or wisdom and, and stuff like that. And so um, it's quite kind of interesting. It says here, a distinctive feature of early Christianity um, initiatory practice that was recovered in the 12th century. Actually, I'm going to skip down a little bit, not talk all about that. But uh, yeah, it describes the sin. Yeah, the desert 40 miles from Antioch. So it says here, they arrived in companies, um, people, right? They arrived in companies. Uh, 201, 300 another, occasionally a 1,000. They renounced with their shouts their traditional errors. They broke up their venerated idols in the presence of that great light, and they foresaw the estratic uh, rites of Aphrodite and the, de uh, the demon whose service they had long accepted. They enjoyed divine uh, religious initiation and received their law instead spoken of that holy tongue of the Simeon. Um, What's crazy is that, um, actually, let me see if I can find the other, other section here. Um, but anyways, they, they would, people would come to him and uh, they would see his holy living and they would kind of renounce their, their idols. They would renounce their paganism and, uh, or their unholy living because they just see somebody that is like this, who is just quite literally living their life in devotion to God. Um, so that kind of interesting. The stylites uh, became so impactful that uh, people started, more people started to do this. Um, and then it just kind of came into a community of people separating themselves from society and uh, into devotion, devotion to God. Uh, and that's where you, we then get monasticism going into the Middle Ages. Um, the interesting thing about monasticism is, uh, and kind of the ironic thing, is that uh, since they tried to separate themselves from society or what seemed like civilization, what they ended up doing was by separating themselves from civilization, ended up encountering other peoples who lived in those other regions where people didn't know there was people out there living, right? You have like the Vikings and uh, the Germanic tribes and barbarians. And so they inadvertently, the monastic movement became an evangelistic movement in a way where as they spread throughout the reaches of society, they ended up converting whole people groups to the faith. <laughs> and as more groups as well, like Germanic groups took over the Roman empire, instead of paganism being once again, reestablished in Europe, the opposite actually happened. Uh, the pagans, the Germanic tribes themselves were converted to Christianity. So it seems like nothing could really stop the Christian faith. Um, whether it's in the early um, period or in the Middle Ages, that, you know, Roman Empire was pagan and Christianity completely changed it. 
Well, then the Roman Empire falls to all these barbarians on the outside. They take over, and then they themselves converted to Christianity. So it seems like nothing, wherever Christianity went, whether it's the reaches of the Roman Empire, within the Roman Empire, in Europe, Africa, or, um, you know, the Near East, people are turning to Christianity left and right. Uh, whether it's from the official church, like as they organized, or the monastic movement, or the stylites, or hermits. And so God has a way, or had a way in history of using different groups, different sects of Christianity to reach the far um, edges of the known world at the time. So quite, quite interesting. Um, that's the early Middle Ages. Uh, as we progress through the Middle Ages, even the monastic movement itself will start to get um, bigger <laughs> and, and corrupt in itself. And then you have breakoff movements from the monastic movements because they thought they became corrupt. And then as you go in the middle, the Renaissance, which, you know, we'll cover in a later time after the fall of Constantinople, um, you're going to get some more corruption of the Catholic Church, like, like crazy, um, which, you know, then you got the Protestant movement, all that. But for this episode, from, from 300s to 1400s, the church in the Middle Ages, you have this progression from Christianity is now legal, they're building bigger in some ways became corrupt, but there were responses to this through the monastic movement, through the stylites of the hermits, trying to separate themselves from society for holy living. Um, and the, the monks themselves, uh, it's, it seemed like there needed to be order in the monastic movement itself. And so you have people like St. Benedict, who started creating um, a schedule for monks themselves, like now we look back and we think, okay, if you want to be a monk, it was like um, hard work, right? You, you woke up, you worked, you ate, you prayed, you had a, a rigid schedule. Uh, and that was to make sure that, you know, people were productive. And uh, they, so monastic movement, because when people weren't eating and people like the stylites were just out fasting and, and praying and living alone, um, they weren't really productive all that much. It kind of became lazy because uh, you don't do a lot because you don't have any energy to do anything. So the, the monks themselves kind of transitioned from the hermits and stylites to organized groups to where they said, well, you need to eat something, you need to work, you need to uh, be able to devote yourself to scripture and make every hour count in the day. And so now you have uh, going into more of the middle of the Middle Ages, you know, pun intended, um, a more organized monastic movement where there's a schedule going on, and, um, you know, so you have an organized big church, Catholic church, and, now, and then you have more organized monastic movement going later into this period. So um, overall, though, in the church, as we're going, in, you know, throughout the Middle Ages, both the Latin side, um, Syriac side, the Eastern side, they all have uh, an order of service. And it's kind of, I wanted to show you the... Um, schedule or like kind of a, a church um how do i say it a church not schedule you, know, you guys know what i'm saying like order of service and so you can see justin martyr recording how he said the church was uh, there would be a liturgy of the word right a reading of the scripture uh greetings and uh psalmody so kind of like songs ish or psalm intercessions um and then a, um, you know, obviously liturgy of the Eucharist. Eucharist is the communion, so they would give communion, present, presentation of gifts, so to God, right, offerings to God. Um, and then they'd have the Eucharistic prayer, like uh, I read um, 
last um, episode, if you guys remember that. And uh, oh, liturgy of the Eucharist, my bad. Liturgy was so they'd talk about the Eucharist and then they'd have the prayer, and then of course they would take communion itself, and then they'd have dismissal. So um, that's kind of the early, but you see this progression uh, as the church becomes legal and it's more organized that they started adding more things to a service. And our services now are pretty simple. It's kind of like a concert in a TED talk. You know, they have a, uh, you know, you have announcements, you have, or you have worship, you have announcements, you have a sermon, you have uh, an altar call. Maybe you have communion depends on the service. That's kind of what our services nowadays look like. Um, then they were also pretty organized with their services, but they had uh, a few more things within the service. And so you could see that by the 1300s, you know, in the middle, the medieval Roman rite, you got liturgy of the word, you got private prayers, um, you know, you got all of these different different uh, things, uh, collection of, of the offering, um, you know, the reading of the epistles, the proclamation or exclamation of the gospel, which is always important. And then, of course, you have the liturgy of the Eucharist and the pairing of the table, then a chant, and that's like a song, right, or hymn, right, that a chant is the collective, like, this is where the worship part comes in. Um, and then prayers, prayers over gifts, uh, Eucharistic prayer, then the Lord's Prayer, and then communion, and then um, post-communion collect, which is interesting, and then this dismissal of service. So, uh, yeah, you can see kind of the slow evolution or formation of the church service in the Middle Ages from kind of early persecuted church with Justin Martyr to now they're kind of similar uh, church structure, but now we're just adding more things. Uh, and that's important to know because some people want to think that Constantine invented Christianity. That's not true at all. Uh, as you know, from last, um, not last week, but last episode, we talked about the flourishing of Christianity under persecution before Constantine. So Christianity was happening way before Constantine. We have the writings, we have inscriptions, we know what Christianity was um, kind of kind of looked like. And this is a good example of the continuity between persecuted Christianity and post-persecution Christianity in the Middle Ages where they have similar type of services. They're believing the same thing. They're doing the same thing, Christ, uh, communion, baptism, worship, um, reading of the word. They're doing all the same things. They're just, they're starting to get more, become more things, right? So more things added to the service, more rites, more liturgy, uh, more traditions, um, things that are building upon um, the structure and um, service of the church, right? as we slowly get on to the Middle Ages. Now, this is going to continue to progress until, of course, the Protestant Reformation, which we'll talk about probably next time, uh, how that changes Christianity overall and service and the structure and the worship of it. But um, you see this progression of buildup of adding uh, things to the service of the church in the Middle Ages. Um, despite, again, all the junk they were dealing with, with collapsed empire uh, Germanic barbarians coming in, the rise of Islam, um, famines, <laughs> lots of lots of um, famines and, and uh, plagues, um, populations dying off. So I mean, they just the Middle Ages dealt with uh, a ton there. Um, but anyways, so from this also uh, we see the introduction of corporate daily prayer. So now that churches have a place in the city, uh, an open place in the city, and kind of not. They, they become, to, they get to the point of state sponsorship, at least in the Roman Empire, 
where you're going to have um, daily prayer services. So that's that's you know great. Um, people who in the Middle Ages uh, they fell into three categories: those who who fought, uh, or I mean, there's those who prayed, those who who um, who worked, and those who fought. I think those are the three. So basically, you were either a farmer or a worker, um, which most people were, uh, like a part of the peasantry, or you were part of the fighting class, the knight class, those who uh, were in military service, and then those who prayed, which were those who um, worked as part of the church, either bishops, priests, presbyters, etc. And so um, that, those were the three categories of society. And so if you were among those who prayed, right, if you were working at the church, that was like your full-time job. That was like your thing every day you were in, in the church, right? Um, and so that's where you're going to have um, these daily um, corporate prayer as part of the community because, you know, this is like an everyday thing. Obviously, you have your Sunday services, which are still going on at this time, but you're going to have uh, daily things as well going on in the church. Um, and so that's, uh, you know, that's interesting as well with the, the services. But also since the church became now they're, they're having more power, more money, more organization, they're going to start putting, uh, making a Christian calendar, start putting holidays on the year, people to celebrate. So where people used to celebrate the pagan holidays in the Roman Empire, now we're able to celebrate Christian holidays. Uh, they would celebrate the martyrs. They would celebrate uh, Christmas, Easter. They would celebrate, um, you know, different traditional things, or Christian things, a part of the church in the Middle Ages. Um, they would, uh, they enacted new rituals or new rites, right? The burial of the dead, penance, right? Which is kind of the paying, paying to the church, right? Uh, weddings, uh, ordination. Uh, a lot of these things start to emerge now that you have a freely exercised, you know, Christianity on the loose, right? You have um, people that can um, be a part of the church and the church can be a part of the community in a free way. And um, this also affects music as well, which I uh, wanted to turn to another page here, 153, where they started to, because of this free expression of faith, you're going to have a lot more um music and hymns and development of the worship in the church. And so one is um, the, like just an example, one hymn says, make the composition of this book of lamentations, which was begun in your name, O Most High, a life-giving remedy to heal your creatures from their sicknesses of soul and body. What I have begun, I pray you to complete. Let your spirit be intimately united with it let uh, the breath of your great power be joined to these poems, which are yours and which your grace inspired me to write. Uh, and another one, um, just interesting one I liked. It says, from the east to the west, from the north and from south, all races and peoples praise you in a new hymn, the maker of all things, who this day have shot forth the sunlight into the world, churches of the righteous, glorifiers of the Holy Trinity, at the dawning of light, praise Christ the dawn of peace, which the Father and the Holy Spirit, who has shot forth the light of his knowledge into us. Uh, what a beautiful hymn and prayer. Like, that's pe part of people's worship. And uh, interesting there is, you know, it says, all races and peoples praise you. Um, before Christianity, the world was very tribalistic. Um, and there, there was this kind of sense um, from the Greek philosophers and the Romans that, 
you know, other people groups were inferior to them. And, uh, you know, every uh, successful empire at the time viewed themselves as kind of a master race. But with Christianity and the emergence, you said Paul's writings where there's no Greek, no, no Jew, no male or female, all are one in Christ. Um, and Justin Martyr, which we brought up earlier, said the same thing where um, Christianity had united peoples, people groups. They said, um, I could see, I forget the exact quote. Uh, I should have probably pulled that up, but I just thought of it. But Ma Justin Martyr makes a comment along that those lines about how um, people are now, like they don't basically, they're not tribalistic anymore, that all are one in the church and that uh, all people groups come together and, and serve God. And what a beautiful, you know, what a beautiful thing. Uh, and I think it's relevant today because there's all this talk right now about, you know, uh, rivalries, tribalism, racism, nationalism, um, ideology, competing ideologies, and all of this, you know, going on. But what's interesting that in the Middle Ages, um, at least in the church, um, racism really wasn't that big of a problem. And uh, it's really not until we get to um, the Enlightenment and a reemergence of Greek idea of, of uh, classical learning that you start to see this, um, this reemergence of this racial superiority talk. And uh, this is going to get accelerated when you get into um, the science, you know, the emergence of the scientific fields and certain um, studies where they're going to categorize people and races. Uh, that's going to come later, you know, post Renaissance. But so, but in the Middle Ages, this is not like a thing that they were dealing with, like we're dealing with as much today. Obviously, there was different languages, tribes, but under the church, the church was kind of this uniting force where it didn't matter what tribe, language, tongue, race you were. Um, it was, you know, all was one under the church, under all were one under Jesus Christ. Um, and so I think that the decline of Christianity today um, is directly resulting in what we see with a lot of the tribalism going on right now, politically, uh, racially in the world. And I think that there's something beautiful about returning to uh, Christianity collectively that kind of removes a lot of that tribalistic tendencies. Um, and so, yeah, maybe, the, you know, people talk about the Middle Ages being the Dark Ages, but there wasn't uh, any really colonialism going on uh, in the Middle Ages. Um, you can argue the Crusades, but that isn't really what the Greek colonies used to do. And then, of course, the reemergence of classical learning in the Renaissance tried to replicate what the Greek colonies did, right? Which is established colonies and and all of um, the you know, all of that. So there's there's a thing or two to be learned here. When Christianity was in power, a lot of people say talk about corruption of Christianity when uh, when the church and state came together. Um, yes and no. I mean, is it? There's a lot more. Corruption, there's just as much corruption politically today and from a secular point of view, um, but there was also less tribalism and uh, racism when the church was in power because all were one in Jesus Christ. So just something to think about there that, uh, you know, I wouldn't all uh, knock on the Middle Ages just yet um, because there were a lot of benefits to when the church um, became more powerful, right, and established itself and organized. Now, of course, there's responses to the corruption of that, which we saw like in the monastic movement. 
Um, and as it became more corrupt in the Renaissance, you're going to have more of a response with more monastic movements, the Franciscans, Dominicans, and then the Protestant um, um, movement. So, or Reformation. So, it's kind of self-correcting already. Um, but yeah, I'm going to get off that that soapbox tangent a little bit. But uh, just one thing to note about the Middle Ages um, is that. Um, another thing, uh, kind of moving on here. Also, feel free to comment. So, if you wanted to, if you wanted to ask questions or um, you know, if it's something pertaining to the topic I'm talking about. Feel free to interact since I don't have my co-host today. Um, Seth, he's, uh, like I said, he's busy with finals. So if you wanted to comment, interact, uh, feel free. That would uh, help me out a lot since uh, I usually have somebody to talk to, but I don't today. And um, so another thing was during this, in the Middle Ages, you're going to see the rise of mysticism. Um, this is going to be more of an Eastern thing and somewhat a, a monastic thing as well. There's going to be a shift towards... Uh, real presence, especially in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, uh, the, and away from intellectualism per se. So the early church, and in the classical period, the early church fathers, there's it's very strong intellectual Christianity. Um, that's not to say there wasn't uh, emphasis on presence, but if you had like a scale, Christianity was more on the intellectual end in the early church. And as we go uh, continue through the Middle Ages, you're going to have a shift towards this, um, not feeling-based Christianity, but like a, this presence, right? So again, this music, this presence, this, um, you know, you have the use of icons in these, this this idea of Christ being with you and the feeling and the presence of God and uh, communion, again, real presence, stuff like that. And so you have the shift towards um, presence. And then as we get slowly into the Renaissance and Enlightenment later, you're going to have a shift back towards intellectualism with the scholastic movement, with, you know, people like Thomas Aquinas, with, uh, again, the Renaissance, the, the Enlightenment, the scientific method. Um, you're going to get, you're going to, the rationalist movement, you're going to shift back into um, intellectualism when, you know, for 15, 16, 1700s. Um, but in this time, you know, we're going from intellectualism to real presence. So the later we go on the Middle Ages, the more it's going to be, there's going to be mystic movements coming out. There's going to be, uh, you know, monastic movements. Um, the churches are focusing on the presence of God and, um, you know, kind of away from intellectualism. So, but there's a balance, you know, you're going to see this ebb and flow in church history where it's going to go from kind of, you know, presence driven to intellectual driven, and it's going to kind of pendulum go back and forth. So I think the truth is somewhere in the middle there where you need both, but it's interesting to see the different movements uh, develop throughout church history. Um, part of this shift towards uh, music and presence and all that, you're going to have stuff like the Gregorian chant. Um, and Charlemagne is going to, he's he comes to power in 800 AD. He's crowned king by the Pope of the Holy Roman Empire. He's going to, um, you know, kind of unite an empire again, which had been wrapped in the West. So, it been ravaged before by barbarian tribes, and now you're going to have this kind of rise in, um, you know, these barbarians who are now Christianized. So you have this mixture of Germanics and Old Roman and Latin peoples, and, you know, this is where you get the development of languages like Italian, French, and German, all this, because it's, you know, the Latin influence, but it's also the old Germanic language influence, like a merge. So you have Charlemagne, who wants to establish this empire, 
this Germanic style empire, which is Christianized now. And they're going, the music's going to flourish. He's going to build cathedrals, right? We're getting into the high middle ages at this point, out of the dark ages. So into uh, organized Western Christianity um, that is going to uh, reflect a lot more. Um, it's like a mini Renaissance, if you say building projects, music, uh, the Gregorian chant is going to become a standard in the Western churches as far as music and hymns. And um, yeah, you're going to have the Gothic age because of that. And that's going to kind of define Latin Christianity. And you're going to have this split between Western Christianity and Eastern Christianity around 1000 uh, AD. So great schism we're talking. Um, there, you're going to start to see subtle differences between Eastern church, Western church, right? And uh, just to know we're on the same page, Eastern Church is where Constantinople is. So that's the big, it's a big Christian center, right? This is where a lot of stuff is going down here. Um, and you're going to have, like I said, elevated monks. Crusades are going to happen at this time, scholastic age. Uh, a lot's going to happen in this later period of the Middle Ages, all the way until it culminates into the, the fall of Constantinople, and the East is going to kind of fall in many ways. Um, but before that happens, it's really it was really the Christian capital of the world. Um, to give you an example, because when we think of Middle Ages, we always think of the West. We always think of um, the Catholic Church in the West, the Latin Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church, and we think of uh, medieval knights and England. But the Middle Ages, um, really the center of the Christian world during the High Middle Ages was centered in Turkey. Um, and it was it looked like this. It was this was the biggest structure in uh, in the world until skyscrapers, like until I think want to say the 1800s. This was in Constantinople, and uh, this was the church. This was called the Hagia Sophia. The inside of it, uh, now you can see since um, it, the Turks took over, they this you know they made it into a mosque. But before it was made into a mosque and called Istanbul. Um, it was a church. It was a Christian church. So this was the center of Christianity for quite a bit of time. And um, so the middle church in the Middle Ages and the Eastern Orthodox Church, that's where a lot of the population was centered. And a lot of people don't know that. Um, but they had their own hymns. They had their own culture. Um, even when the Catholic Roman Catholic Church split from the Orth Eastern Orthodox, you still had a lot of uh, similar traditions of things. Um, but I wanted to, to show you kind of their hymns, the Eastern Orthodox. So from, let's see, page 75. So um, there was a focus on presence here. And that's, you know, like I was saying, the Middle Ages, there was this sense of, of presence and mysticism of the East. And uh, the goal was, as this is here, the Byzantine rite, uh, the goal was that the church is heaven on earth in which the heavenly God has made his home and dwells. It resonates with the cross, the tomb, and the resurrection of Christ. Throughout the history of the liturgical tradition, encounter and remembrance have been accomplished and contemplated through various means. The proclamation of scripture, so that was part of their services. Um, proclamation of scripture, the recitation of psalmody, so that's like, you know, psalms and hymns. The chanting of hymns, the petitions of prayer, the performance of ritual action. Um, and the or and the performance of ritual action. So these were part of the Eastern Orthodox Church. And to give you a sense of what the hymns sound, um, 
not sounded like, I guess I'm not going to sing it for you. Um, some of their, their songs, it says here, um, what they would do during the Holy Week is the whole creation was changed by fear when it saw the O Christ hanging on the cross. The sun was darkened and the fountains of the earth were shaken. All things suffered with the creator of all. Of thine own will thou hast endured this for our sakes, O Lord, glory to thee. And uh, another one, let everything in the heaven rejoice, let everything on earth be glad, for the Lord has shown strength with his arm, by death he has trampled on death, he has become the firstborn from the dead, from the belly of hell he has delivered us, and granted the world his great mercy. Um, that's definitely a change from the songs we have today, where it's like, uh, you know, you're good, you're good, yeah. Yeah, you're good. <laughs> yeah. And there's nothing wrong with some modern worship songs, but uh, there's you can see the theological depth and how they cared. Um, they, they put some thought into their hymns and songs, and some of this was accompanied by musical instruments. Um, the instruments they had at the time, they didn't have, you know, um, you know, guitars and all that, but they did have stringed instruments, and they did have percussions. They had things like a bagpipe, the flute, the harp, bells, um, different things like that. They did have musical instruments. And so they would, uh, some of these hymns and songs and chants would be accompanied by musical instruments. Uh, so that's important to think that, you know, the church of the middle ages, both the Orthodox and the Catholic, it wasn't dead. It wasn't like a, you know, boring all or here. Like this was a community thing. They had instruments, they had hymns, they had songs. And so it was very, it was very alive. And there was a focus on the presence uh, especially in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, the, the, feeling the presence of God. So, um, yeah, that's uh, that's kind of what, what happened there. There's also development of choir. So we think, okay, where does the choir from, come from? Middle Ages, you start to see this development of the church choir. Um, now that you have lots of people in the church uh, and you have singing, right? Let's Well, let's just get a group of people together and uh, have groups singing in harmony together these hymns and songs and so you have the development of the church choir as a result of the church of the middle ages so if you've ever been to a good choir um you know maybe a christmas play or you know a pentecostal church with a choir or an old style church um you know what a good choir sounds like you can thank the church of the middle ages for that um last thing and i kind of want to wrap it up here before we get some to a few questions um is that all of this is developing, right? Church is getting bigger. It's getting more influential. It's um, changing the world, right? It's spreading throughout the known world. It's facing a lot of problems um, from invasions from pagans and also from Islam and South. Um, and eventually the Eastern Church, right? The under Constantinople is going to fall um, to the Muslim Turks in a 14, let me see again, it was 1453. So 1453, Eastern Christianity here is going to kind of, in some ways, collapse. Um, and it's going to kind of spread. It's still spread, right? It's going to spread to Greece and, and Russia. So Russia and Greece are, and some parts of the East are really the champions, modern-day champions of Eastern Orthodox. So we, we think today it's such a small group, right? Because the church at that time was just Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic until you get the Protestant movement. So you got three main groups today of Christianity. But um, it, Eastern Orthodox was kind of the biggest at the time, uh, leading up to the fall of Constantinople. 
The only reason we don't think of it as very big now and uh, is because the rise of Islam conquered a lot of the East and including the capital Constantinople. And on top of that, the Roman Catholic Church expanded into the West with the discoveries of America. So it was actually the fall of Constantinople that caused Western Christians to look for other trade routes to the East now that their pinnacle Christian city that's bridging the East and the West, or Asia and Europe, is now conquered by Muslim Turks. So it caused people like Christopher Columbus, you know, plus a couple of years later, to think, hey, I have a faster way around the world, and let me let me get to India that way. And uh, he discovers um, the Americas. And so the Catholic Church, you know, was able to spread itself to South America in particular, but the Americas. And so now when we look back, the Roman, the Western Church is a lot more, a lot bigger, a lot more influential, and the Eastern Orthodox Church had mostly been conquered by uh, Muslims, and um, it's just remnants of Russia and Greece and some other parts of the world. So, uh, but before the fall of Constantinople, Middle Ages, Middle Ages was really big for Eastern Orthodox Church. So when you think Middle Ages, don't just think... Um, you know, knights in the Roman Catholic Church, but think that, okay, the Middle Ages, Christianity in the Middle Ages, a big part of that was the Eastern Orthodox in Turkey and, um, you know, this focus on real presence, this focus on um, liturgy and, uh, and hymns, the development of hymns and all of this stuff. So I hope you guys got some good information out of that, uh, next time we'll obviously talk about what happens afterwards and what happens with the Protestant Reformation, the spread of Christianity, and what worship looked like going into the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and, and modern age. Um, but yeah, I'll stay here for probably another few minutes uh, in case anybody wants to comment, anybody has questions, wants to interact with anything that I talked about this episode of what Christianity and what worship looked like in the Middle Ages. Um, but yeah, that's that's uh, basically my my thoughts on this. Um, next time, Seth should be joining me again. Um, but uh, yeah, this this uh, this week wanted to just put all that out there, and uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed what uh, all the info. So um, I'm not seeing any comments come in right now. So I think I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up and uh, and call it a night. I think we just reached the, the one hour mark. So I think that's a good place to um, to end. So I'll, uh, I'll see you guys next time, uh, probably next week. And uh, feel free to, like I said, like, subscribe, comment, uh, rate us on Facebook. That's, that's super helpful as well. And um, yeah, let, let us know in the, in the comments what you think. Um, blessings, and I'll see you guys next time.